Welcome to the Take the Cake podcast. I am your host, Kate Noel, and I am so happy you're here. My mission is to inspire you to be the best version of yourself by truly honoring what your mind, body, and soul want and need. Here, we talk about everything and anything, wellness, recovery, lifestyle stuff, lots more. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Take the Cake podcast. Today I am, I'm so excited for this episode because it's probably one of the most exciting episodes for me to date because I'm interviewing one of my best friends, Sarah. She goes by Sarah the Human, that's her pen name, so she just wrote a book and I had the opportunity to read her book called Borderline Brainwashed before it was launched, which was yesterday, it was launched yesterday. Uh, Before that, it was available for pre-order, and now it's just available to purchase. So I'm so excited for her because I've had the opportunity to experience her in her book writing process throughout the years of knowing her, and it's been just incredible. So this book, Borderline Brainwashed, is a memoir, so to speak, and she talks about her life as she moves to LA and as she heals and changes and how her core beliefs about herself and the world really changed among other things. So it was really honest and real. And I think it was truly such an important book for anyone to read. It's so healing. And I felt like I left reading it feeling like, okay, I need to really um, extend my view of the world and myself So it's a super quick read, and like I said, it really opened my eyes in so many ways. So in this podcast specifically, I open up about my journey with religion and spirituality, which is a lot of what Sarah's book, the base of it all is, really. Um, And surprisingly, it feels pretty vulnerable for me, but I'm going to keep it in there. (laughs) And because every chapter was so captivating, I actually asked her if we could do a two-part podcast. So this is part one. And this first episode is going to be about shifting your core beliefs, which is something I know we all have struggled with because a lot of the times we have these core beliefs that don't really align with what our life is calling us to be. Then we end up feeling stuck. And um, we talk about spirituality, like I said. We talk about dealing with rejection. We talk about breaking binaries. um, And we talk a little bit about people-pleasing. So like I said, this book is so special, not just because Sarah's one of my best friends, but because I really think every single person listening to this podcast will find it helpful in their healing journey and into living their truest selves. So I hope that you all enjoy this. It's really fun to release an episode and record an episode with one of your like best friends because we were just kind of having a conversation in my living room, except we had microphones. <laughs> and here we go. Enjoy the episode part one about borderline brainwash. We have Sarah the human here. She is one of my best, best friends and I love her so much. I'm so, so honored to have you here. I just feel so excited that we're gonna talk about your new book, Borderline Brainwashed because it's personally one of my faves, not just because you're one of my besties, but because it's truly a life-changing book. How about you just tell me what the book is about in your experience? Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here, truly. 
Um, so the book is about um, my story. It's partly a memoir and partly a call for introspection and openness. It starts out sharing that I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas into a religion called fundamentalist Christianity. And if you don't know, fundamentalism is where uh, you take the literal version of the Bible to be absolute truth. And so basically I was handed a lot of rights and wrongs, black and white type of thinking. And I believed that way and kind of viewed the world as a lot of, as black and white for most of my life until I moved to Los Angeles. And this is kind of where the book started to take shape because when I moved to Los Angeles, I was approached with a lot of change and a lot of differences in opinions. And back in Little Rock, um, almost everyone around me believed what I believed. And so I never really encountered situations where my beliefs were legitimately challenged. And in LA, all of my beliefs were challenged all at once. It was a diverse group of people, you know, from economic status, uh, backgrounds, diverse in race and diverse in political beliefs and just beliefs in general. And so, the book is really my story of being faced with the decision to hang on to everything I was taught to be true and be kind of closed to newness and or, you know, allowing myself to open up and uh, question what I was taught and really think for myself on how to view the world. I love that. And I personally have seen it as your friend, I mean, I was, we became friends right when you moved here. And I've seen that change firsthand. I've experienced it, the energy shift, the uh, just being with you. And it's just so cool to see. And it was so cool to read it personally and to be reminded of how much can change in somebody in a beautiful way. So it was just so inspiring to just read it all and also just like learn more about your background because. It just is so interesting and intense, I would say, sometimes. Um, also, I'd love to know about your process because you kind of, this, this book has really changed over the course of you like writing it. So what was it like at first and how did it evolve into what it is now? Yes, definitely. When I started writing, I was researching a lot of how to write a nonfiction and I stumbled upon there's technically two different styles of writers. There are um, plotters, quote unquote, and pantsers. And so what a plotter is, is a plotter is somebody who sits down before they write a book and they outline everything they're going to talk about. You know, outline the topic, the chapter headings, everything, and basically have the book all completely formed in their head before they sit down to write. The pantser is somebody who just takes things as they come, has honestly not really any idea of how it's going to turn out, just kind of feels this desire to write something and, you know, watch it take shape as it goes. So I am totally a pantser. <laughs> I started to write in September of 2020 and just was kind of searching myself for what I wanted to say. I think that was the question I was starting with is, what do I want to say? You know, what do I want to say 
to myself, for myself, and then also like for others as well. Um, and just watching that shift over time, just over the course of months, um, was a really cool process. I was, you know, there were moments where I was halfway in and felt like I didn't have anything, you know, it felt like this is just a jumble of random, <laughs> random thoughts, but then, um, just being able to persevere and keep going, eventually it took shape and turned into a beautiful book. I know. And it was cool just to experience that from my perspective, because I remember asking you, of course, the question that like, I don't think anyone really loves to hear, especially in the beginning of the process, but I'm like, what is your book about? Right. <laughs> you're like, I'm um, like, I don't know yet. <laughs> yeah. You're like, give me some time. And I remember you saying it was about this and then it was about this. And I, right. it, it's beautiful though. Like, I love that. Cause it, you can really tell it's, you're really pouring your soul and your life into it because it's changing as, and it's evolving. And I, I feel like you've mentioned this before that writing this book really changed you. Absolutely. I mean, it was so therapeutic and healing because I could write a thought I had and then see it on paper staring back at me and kind of be thinking, gosh, that's not a very kind thought. Like, well, I don't want to write this. I don't want to put this out, but that is what was coming out of me, you know? And so just writing that out and then realizing, okay, this is not, this is something I need to heal in myself before I release any sort of book about it. You know, I need to be able to write in a way that is humble and coming from a place of really surrender and in humility instead of writing from a place as if I have all the answers. Yeah. And you can really feel that through your writing. And just personally, I know as your friend, maybe if you feel comfortable sharing, but there were a lot of things that you did during the process of writing your book, people you confronted, therapy, like there was so much that went into that process that I don't think a lot of people would consider in anyone who's writing like a book like yours, um, more of like a personal sort of growth book. Like, especially for you, there was a lot of things that you had to work through. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing was being, you know, I was writing about being true to myself and, you know, exploring what it means to be my true self. And I was writing about how in order to be our truest selves, we are probably going to disappoint people. And especially if they knew our old selves, right? Because we changed and it's hard. It's hard a lot of times, especially for loved ones or people close to us to, you know, accept the new us. And I realized that, you know, me writing this book and being true to myself while writing it, I was afraid of what a lot of people would think, my close friends, my loved ones. And I had to come to terms with, you know, talking to my friends and family and saying, hey, this is what um, I've written. I'd love for you to read it. And, and some people, you know, like most people were extremely, extremely loving about it and, you know, love where I'm at in my journey right now. And, and some people are not ready for it and that's okay. You know, I think it's also respecting where other people are at in their journey too. That's, we're all, you know, on our own processes spiritually and just in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get a lot of people asking me, how do I, how do I deal with loved ones, especially family and close friends that don't understand 
change and growth in your life. And that's a really hard spot to be in. Like I feel for these people. I was really lucky in that a lot of my healing in my life, I feel like I've been really supported by, but it's not always that easy. So to anyone who's listening who's on in that journey, just know that it does get easier and to get that help and that support that you need. And sometimes it takes setting boundaries with those people who don't necessarily believe in what you believe or understand you and your growth. And it doesn't always mean forever, but, um, but yeah, well, thank you for sharing about your process and about just about borderline brainwash in general. When I was reading the book, I really, I really resonated with the idea that having this big shift, having this big goal, like a lot of my audience, they want to recover. And I talk a lot about how it's about like changing your beliefs and changing, making choices on a daily basis. So I really resonated with that idea of like shifting your smaller beliefs and then ultimately like eventually shifting your core beliefs and how that kind of chain reaction works. So can you speak more on that? Yes. So our core beliefs are the lens in which we see the world. And so we view ourselves and others in the world through the lens of our core beliefs. And our core beliefs were handed to us in childhood. Their child, our childhood shapes what our core beliefs are. And so an example of a core belief is that um, humans are good inherently or humans are bad inherently. I am good inherently. I am bad inherently. Um, or I'm accepted as I am. I'm not accepted as I am. Um, the world is a safe place. The world is a dangerous place. So those are some examples of core beliefs. And um, then it can be more, um, also a core belief could be that there is a higher power, you know, there's a God. Um, for me, a core belief was that the Bible is absolute truth. That was like a very, you know, substantial belief that I had. And our core beliefs are connected to our smaller beliefs. So um, Chilean philosopher Umberto Matuana, he f concluded that our beliefs work together to form a system. And because they're connected, eventually, if a smaller belief is affected, and when it's affected, it means you've changed your mind about that belief. When that belief is affected, it can ultimately lead to another smaller belief being affected and then another one and then another one and it can end up changing your core belief. So I like to think about it as a wall of bricks. You know, maybe this wall is standing on its own. This is the brick, the belief system. And our core beliefs are um, mixed in there with our small beliefs. And if we take out a small belief, uh, maybe you take out one brick and the whole system is still standing. The wall is still standing. Maybe you take out another one, it's still standing. But eventually when you take out 10 or 15 or 20, it has the power to collapse the whole system. So an example um, for me, what happened in my journey was I was told and handed this belief that was central to who I was that the literal version of the Bible was absolute truth. And uh, there are a bunch of verses in the Bible uh, where 
taking the literal version to be true, it has some very serious implications. For example, the, the Bible in the literal translation says, there's a verse that says, flee sexual immorality. I took that to mean as do not have sex before marriage. Any sort of sexual endeavor before marriage was wrong. It was a sin. And um, so that was, that was a smaller belief. The core belief was the Bible's absolute truth. Smaller belief was um, don't have sex before marriage because it's wrong. And so I didn't have sex before marriage because I thought it was wrong. And so I dated my husband for, my husband now, but I dated my boyfriend then, Bo, for three years. And we tried our darndest to (laughs) not have sex for three years, which it was really hard. Um, And it was tempting to, you know, obviously just give in to our natural beautiful sexual desires. Um, and so I, I suppressed those and I did not have sex before marriage. And the reason I did that was because I thought that I was saving my gift of being a virgin for my husband. I thought it was like a little treasure for him that he would be so happy with me that I saved this gift for him. Um, but then what I found out was because I had um, had avoided my sexuality and suppressed it, when it came time to have sex in the context of marriage, I froze. I was completely uncomfortable with it. It was scary. It was something that just made me feel like it was still wrong and I still felt shame even into my marriage. And so after uh, really the first couple years of our relationship, I realized that this shame that I was still feeling having sex was stemming from my belief that sex before marriage was wrong. And I still felt shame having sex, even in marriage. And so that belief ended up collapsing, where I started to talk to friends who had also waited for marriage to have sex, and I and grew up in strict Christian circles like I did. And they were having similar experiences, where they were saying that their relationships were, their sexual relationships were hurting from it because they were not in touch with their sexuality. Like they were really uncomfortable and, you know, weren't free to just, you know, dirty talk a little bit or role play or like be fun. And it's like, there's something that was really just holding me and and others who experienced this back. And so over time, I started to change that belief where I started to see couples who are having sex before marriage and looking at their relationship and, you know, talking with them and seeing how it's benefiting their relationship. They are having healthy sex, healthy connection, and it's beautiful. Their love is beautiful. And it doesn't matter if they have signed a contract and given it to the government or not. And it doesn't matter if they've had three people witnessing their 
union, you know, it's still beautiful. And, and it's also beautiful if someone is single and wants to have sex with whoever, whatever partner randomly or with themselves. I mean, they're just, it's, sex is something that is so precious. And, you know, each human, I believe, can benefit from feeling free to express themselves sexually however they want. And it's not a matter to me, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of what makes you feel good. And if it makes you feel good, great. And if it doesn't make you feel good, mm -hmm. then that's great too. Then, you know, so, um, so back to the core and smaller beliefs being connected or not, <laughs> or being connected. Once the sex before marriage belief switched, it, uh, switched um, the reason I had that belief in the first place was because of my core belief. Because the, the core belief had, of the Bible being absolute truth, had sex before marriage being wrong in, baked into it. So once that one switched, you would think automatically I would you know, realize, oh, well, the literal interpretation of the Bible being absolute truth is not true. You know, that's, you would think because it's connected, because I'm able to pick out one thing and say, well, this is not true. And, and, and every, almost every, every single Christian I've ever met does that. Right. By the way. <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Most people don't agree with a lot of stuff in the Bible, but claim that the Bible is absolute truth. And it's kind of crazy when you think about it, because those two cannot coexist. It's either absolute truth, every single word, or it's not. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that some of it is, some of it isn't, it's like that can't exist in that context. So but yes, you would think that the whole thing would come tumbling down after that one belief, but it doesn't because it is still that brick wall, right? It's still, that was just one belief and our core beliefs are ingrained in us so strongly that most adults go, we go our entire lives and we never change them. Mm -hmm. We never change them, which is pretty bizarre because someone could be, brought up in a household and told every day, you are good, you are loved, you are accepted. Someone could be brought up in a household told every day, you are bad, you are not worth shit, you are terrible. And both of those people can live their entire lives and view the world through those lenses. And it can, it can kind of be make or break you, you know, in a way, unless we take the time to unlearn what we were taught to believe and really go through every single little detail of what we think about the world, how we view it. And, you know, I do think it's probably impossible to be completely unbiased <laughs> about, you know, be, to have our lenses like completely wiped, but to do that work of unlearning and deconstructing almost everything we could ever think of. And for those listening who aren't necessarily like come from a Christian background or 
you know, religious background, it's not just religious core beliefs or Bible-based core beliefs. There's, there's so many that are just around us in our world, like I'm not loved or the world is chaos or people are innately bad. Like there's so many core beliefs. And like Sarah said, a lot of the times we grow up and they're just ingrained in us. It's not like something we consciously consume. And really our core beliefs are often the drivers, I would say, correct me if you think I'm wrong, I would say are like the drivers to so many of our actions and we don't even connect the dots. And I think a lot of my audience who are like pursuing recovery or just pursuing being actually healthy um, is, that's that rings true for them, like a core belief about themselves that's like, I am not worthy or I, you know, don't deserve this or and I don't deserve that. So how... How can some like where can somebody start like if they don't even know how to get there? Can you like yeah? What what can somebody do? Definitely. Well, I like what you said about our core beliefs influencing our actions. So an example, I would say the first place to start is identifying your core beliefs and figuring out what those are. And a way you can do that is kind of you know audit your actions and. So for example, if you have a core belief that you cannot trust people, example I give in the book is if you believe that a potential boyfriend or girlfriend or partner um, will be unfaithful because you have that core belief that you can't trust people, you're less likely to download a dating app. You're less likely to even go on the date because deep down your core belief is this person is not going to be trustworthy. And so then there's also these uh, core beliefs about ourselves like that we are not smart, that we are dumb. And if you think about your actions with that belief, we can tend to not put effort into our studies or, um, you know, if we get an A on the test, we think it's just luck. Oh, that's just luck. You know, if we get an F on the test, we think, oh yeah, that's, that's right. That's accurate. I'm dumb. That's, that's confirming that I'm dumb. So I think first step is analyzing your responses. You know, when something good happens to you, do you say, I don't deserve this? Or do you acknowledge it and thank it? When something bad happens to you, what is your reaction? Do you think, of course, of course? Or are you thinking, why me? Like, just acknowledging what happens to you and how you react can, can identify, you know, if you have those, um, those core beliefs of you are bad or you are good. And I think what's most helpful for me is thinking about when it comes to the core beliefs that we are bad or unworthy or unaccepted, I just think about newborn babies because when a newborn human comes out of the womb, that baby is just automatically loved. That baby is doing nothing but just probably crying. It just came out of a dark place. Now they're probably freaking out, you know, they're crying, but everyone around the baby can acknowledge this human is so loved and so beautiful and so good and so precious. That baby 
no, even if it's crying, it's not bad. It's not inherently bad. It's not inherently invaluable. Mm -hmm. It's valuable just because it's alive and it's a baby. And you and I and everyone are literally just big older babies. babies. We're just big babies. Exactly. I am a big baby, honestly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it sounds so like basic, but it's just easy to forget that because, you know, as we grow up, we start to be shaped by our environment and and the world does tell us so often that we are defined by what we do. We're defined by our actions, like our job, our responses, our emotions. But at the end of the day, every single human has that inherent value and worth and goodness. Mm -hmm. It's, I love that. I love that you said that. And I think about this, I've been thinking about this recently. It's like, okay, let's say somebody has a body image issue. We, all of us in the room have been there, so we get it. Okay. When, you know, when we're babies, we look at our little roles and we're like, oh, we play with them and we think they're cute. And then our parents are like, oh, your baby fat's so cute. You're so chunky. There's all these like positive words about our bodies and how they're so like fun and beautiful and jiggly and this and that. And then as we grow up somewhere along the line, we start getting shamed. And, you know, even from our parents, it just something happens from the media, from anyone, anyone and everything. It's just like you get shamed and, you know, we stop celebrating our victories and our wins in our life. You think about a newborn, not a newborn, but you think about a one-year-old. I don't know. What age do people start walking? You think about a, a child walking, a toddler walking for the first time and everyone's clapping for them and, and so excited that they're doing all these things. And like, obviously we shouldn't be clapping for people who are walking now because it's like, Yes, we all we all walk around, but I just feel like we stop like having that joy as I would say as teenagers on, we just don't connect to that amazingness and that worthiness and that like beautiful beautifulness of just us and yeah, that self-worth. What do you do when you don't feel worthy? How how do you go back into like you have almost like you have to go back to your childhood right that's kind of what you're saying in a way or you have to go back at least somewhere to where you got that yeah I think it you know it's important to identify you know how we got that belief um but a way that's a little more you know easily <laughs> um practical I guess is just doing things you love and noticing who you are in those moments I think that so often we define ourselves based on the interactions we've had with, with other people or negative interactions that we have. You know, we maybe we are a little short with our, you know, barista or something and we kick ourselves like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm, I'm a terrible person. You know, that's kind of, at least for me, like the trap that I'll fall in. Um, but when I am on a walk and I'm just have my headphones on, I'm listening to music, I'm just at peace. I just have inner harmony. There's no one around. I'm just me and nature. I like myself. It didn't, and that's, those moments are the moments 
that define us, right? When we're truly ourselves, when we're not performing, we're not trying to achieve, we're not worried about what anyone else thinks about us. It's like, who are you in the moments when you are at peace and at ease? Because that's what can highlight your worth if you focus on who you are in those moments. I love that. I've never even thought about it that way. That's super practical and really beautiful. So thank you. My next question is about confirmation bias and false evidence. You talk about that in your book too. When it comes to someone's core belief, like let's go back to the sex before marriage thing because I think everyone can relate to at least feeling some sort of sexual like pressure whether it's even just from school, like just from abstinence only education. Mm -hmm. I can't. What if somebody feels like, okay, I I feel like it's innately good for me to have sex and and like a part of me wants this, but then there's these, all these sources telling me that it's bad and they're giving me evidence Mm -hmm. as to why it's bad and they're giving me fear about like, I'm scared, you know, I'm scared I'm going to get an STD and I'm going to get pregnant and that's definitely what's going to happen to me, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. What is confirmation bias and false evidence? Can you just talk about that more? (laughs) Yes, definitely. Um, Yes, I love the example you gave. So basically, confirmation bias is when, well, if we have any belief, it doesn't matter what belief it is. It could be a belief that I don't like avocados. We are going to find data points and evidence in quotes quote-unquote evidence to back up that belief because we like to be right like who doesn't like to be right like we like to be right about everything we like to have all the answers we like that comfort and knowing that we have all the answers so what we do is we we form a belief let's say it's the belief that you know yeah that sex before marriage is wrong So then we go and find evidence to support that belief. So the evidence, quote unquote, that I found to support that belief was in the Bible. That's not actually evidence. If you think about it, there, the idea that our sexual drive is wrong compared to the other organisms and animals on this planet. I would never think that a sexual drive between any sort of animal situation happening was wrong. No, and like that is what, (laughs) so there's other evidence and you know, that's the way there's other evidence that can actually support the belief that it's not wrong. So either way, you can find whatever evidence, quote unquote, that you want to support whatever belief you want. Everything. For everything. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it could be for anything. It could be that coronavirus is real, coronavirus is not real. Really, just anything. And so you can see how dangerous that is because and we and we see it on on CNN, Fox mm-hmm. News. That's like, what I was thinking this whole time. <laughs> right. Like, right. Like the reason people are drawn to those news stations the, the person who watches CNN is most likely going to already agree with everything CNN says. The person that watches Fox News is also most likely to already agree with everything Fox News says. The reason that someone doesn't want to switch is because it's scary. The, the first reaction is, I'm scared. I don't, 
And the other reaction is they're wrong. Those are the two reactions. And I think the fear comes in because we, we almost don't even want to tune in to another message that's different from what we believe because we're scared that this whole time we've been believing something that is just wrong and that it's not true. And, and it is humiliating when that happens. I share a story in the book, which is one of my favorite chapters. It's called Avocados. Mm -hmm. And I do talk about how I used to think that I did not like avocados. And for whatever reason, I just looked at guacamole. I looked at avocado. I hadn't even tried it. And I just thought, Ugh, the texture, it's not for me. I don't want anything to do with it. So for years, I would tell people I don't like them. And it started to become part of my identity. People would say, hey, I got you this salad and I didn't put avocados in it because I know you don't like avocados, you know? And I'm like, thank you. And so it, it turned into being more than just a silly belief of if I like it or not. It it turned into being part of my identity. Like people knew me as anti-avocado person. And so, and so after being in LA, avocados are literally everywhere. You cannot order anything off of any menu without it having avocado in it for the most part. Um, and I just kind of got fed up with saying no avocado. And I, I just finally started to be open to the idea of trying it and I just incorporated it into my diet and eventually the more I tried it the more I realized oh shoot I do like avocados I love avocados. I love them <laughs> I know and not to be super millennial <laughs> right now but I love them they're seriously one of my favorite foods of all time and it still embarrasses me because I remember ordering guacamole a couple years ago and my husband saying, I thought you didn't like avocados. <laughs> and it's like, that's just such a tiny belief, but it's embarrassing to just admit, like, you're right. I was totally wrong. I thought I didn't. And I was totally wrong for like 20 years. Mm -hmm. And now that I do like them, I'm so glad where I'm at. I like them. I'm able to enjoy them. My life is so much more enriched but it's still kind of humiliating and hard because people like to pull people down and, and shame people. And, you know, not that my husband was doing that to me. He wasn't, he was just joking, but, um, but still, so all this to say, imagine how difficult it is to change a belief that you believe in your soul, you're a Republican and change it to being a Democrat. Mm -hmm. I mean, we saw it. We saw it yeah. in 2020, Black Lives Matter or, or Blue Lives Matter. I can hardly say those words. <laughs> or, you know, yeah. whatever it is. Uh, right. Coronavirus is real. Coronavirus is not. Like, masks, no masks. It's like people are fired up on both sides. And obviously, I do have a stand on those sides. And it's not like, you know, sometimes you can be black and white, I think. But one of my core beliefs that that ended up being a part of my identity, because that really resonates with me, having this core belief about yourself or about the world, and it ends up being your identity, ends up being like your autonomy, like what you stand for and who you are. And one of mine was like, I'm always going to be the thinnest person in the room. Mm. 
And it's, it sounds so self, I mean, it is, it sounds self-absorbed. It sounds crazy, but it's like, I couldn't even like, I, it's like, I didn't even see the wrong in it because it was so ingrained in me for some reason. That's just over time, it got more solidified into my identity. So, um, you know, breaking that down was my, a part of my recovery journey, which obviously, like you said, it takes time and time and time and tries and tries and tries to get over that. So you talk about like the wall, that like brick wall. And so for you trying the avocado once, like maybe having what one bite, what was it? I'm sure it was like one bite. I'm sure you didn't have the entire avocado and then had an avocado party. It's like, (laughs) you have to slowly expose yourself to other ideas. And another uh, place I think a lot of confirmation bias exists is social media, especially for like our age and people listening to this, like social media is full of it. So that's why I always say like, make sure you're going through your feed and kind of thinking about the people that you're exposing yourself to and just keeping a diverse feed because... I think we can, like, if we look at our followers, people we're following, we can get an idea of, like, where we put our identity and who we want to be. And it can be really humbling to, like, take a step back and be like, whoa, I'm following way, way too many of, like, the same type of people with the same beliefs, and I'm getting sucked in. Um, That's just a little idea. That's so good. (laughs) No, I love that. Yes, diverse, like, our environments, no matter where we are, are bubbles. And so just intentionally popping our environment bubbles. <laughs> and yeah, you can diversify your feed. You can diversify the podcast you listen to. I mean, you can change the news channel. I mean, there's just so many different ways. Reading books that, you know, you would probably not think to read before. Like, there's so many different ways we can we can do that. I think what's what's hard about it is once we do detach our identity from our beliefs, it's scary and it's uncomfortable because for so long, our identity has been these beliefs. I am a Republican. I am a Democrat. I'm a Christian. I'm an atheist. I'm a, a, you know, workout instructor. Like our identity is tied to all of these beliefs that we have about ourselves and none of those beliefs actually say anything about ourselves. They actually just are kind of all made up. (laughs) It's all, they're all just made up things. I mean, there was a time when being a Democrat or Republican didn't exist. I mean, so the fact that we tie our identity to things that are just completely made up is, is kind of scary. But what can feel even more scary is when we do detach from all of those and take them all off and just have it be just ourselves. we, a lot of times we don't know who we are. And, and that's what I experienced was I had been forming myself from everything other than myself. I had been, you know, allowing cultural structures, cultural norms, friends, family, shape who I am. And they held all the power of who I would be because 
my identity was just all of these beliefs. And so once we're able to just be and not have all these beliefs attached to our names, you know, that's when we really can start to find ourselves. Mm-hmm. This is reminding me of the transcending and including part of your book, which is, I think, actually my favorite part, my favorite chapter, because it's exactly what you're saying. I mean, it's like getting comfortable with being on a scale, having that binary that's like, or breaking the binary, so to speak, and having um, gray area with things like religion, political views, eating styles, whatever it may be. Like I'm thinking when you were just talking, I was thinking about, I don't know if you've ever seen those Instagram polls, not the ones you do, not those, (laughs) although that could be it too. But have you ever seen like the ones where someone posts a story and it's like this or that, and it's like coffee versus tea and it's like morning versus night. I struggle with those so much. Like I'm always like, I can't pick and then I get like stressed (laughs) out. I know. I'm like, I want to circle both. And just the other day I was, I was with you and I was like, oh yeah, I'm not a morning person, but I really want to be. And you were like, oh, that's a limiting belief. Like you, you can be a morning person. You just like, don't put yourself in that category of like being one or the other. And I was like, you're right. Like, it's just like so simple. So talk to me about transcending and including a little bit more and just living, how to be comfortable living in the, you know, on the scale, I guess. And yeah. Definitely. Yes. So whenever I unlearned, you know, a lot of Christianity and a lot of my political beliefs, a lot of everything, the temptation was to ditch everything that I was ever taught and do something entirely different. And, you know, for example, I was handed a narrative that there is a higher power, there's like a universe, there's a God, there's there's something other than us humans and science. And that was something that I felt like leaving Christianity, I had to also leave behind. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like it had to be binary. It had to be... Atheist. Yes, mm-hmm. I had to be atheist. If I'm not a Christian, I'm an atheist. And... So that was a trap that I fell into um, after, you know, I had Christianity kind of crumble for me. I, I was in this space of, I don't know, I guess I don't pray anymore. I guess I don't sing worship songs anymore. I guess I don't do anything I ever used to do before. And now I have to do something t- entirely different. And so anyway... Um, The transcending and including is this idea of I am, you know, transcending to where I'm growing and I am leaving a lot, a lot, a lot behind. But it's so important to recognize that there's a lot of healthy habits, healthy beliefs that I was also handed, I was handed harmful beliefs, but I was also handed a lot of healthy beliefs and disciplines that I can include and take with me. This idea that the universe is for me, loves me, is guiding me, that is a healthy, healthy belief to to take on. 
And, you know, it, it has different language now. It used to be God or Lord or Jesus. And, and now, you know, a way to, to kind of help me transition, I'll call God the divine or the universe. There's a different name. Um, but at the end of the day, it just, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You know, even these things of, uh, these things, these made up things of man or woman, you know, like right now we are in a space where it is becoming more popular to be gender non-conforming. Mm -hmm. And I love, I that. love that. I mean, I honestly would dream of a world where we're all gender non-conforming. I mean, because even with the label man and the label woman, there's so much packed into that and we can start to attach our identity to that label of I'm a woman, therefore I am emotional, therefore I am weak. You know, there are things that are attached to what uh, society tells us a man should be and a woman should be. And it can be, it can be, of course, beneficial. Um, it can also be, be harmful at times. And so just just being able to be comfortable in this space where we don't need to attach ourselves to any sort of binary, like you're saying, it, it, it can just, it can be a space where we're just free to be, free to be who we are, free to allow others to be who they are, accept ourselves, accept others, and, and that's it. I just am so, I have experienced, like, seeing your book in action for the past so ever since I've known you like I said how long has it been like four four, four years. years yeah feels like forever we're so <laughs> I know we are and uh but yeah like I've just seen you take this on so I just couldn't help but smile when you were talking because I was like oh my gosh like this Sarah in front of me is amazing I mean the Sarah that I used to know is also amazing but I can just feel it like I can just feel that energy from you of just like love and acceptance for the world and it's so beautiful and I'm just really I'm just how to say that because I feel the I same feel about you though I know we're I really both do. really on such a we talk about every time we hang out we talk about how much we're changing and growing and it's really hard to be in a space where you're changing and growing there's a lot of fear uh, like you said and I think anyone, I think everyone listening to this podcast understands that because they're actively pursuing some sort of change or growth, which applies to you. Thanks for listening. <laughs> for example, a lot of my listeners are afraid of what their parents and their family and friends and the people around them might say or how they would react. And talk to me about your advice on that because I know you have experience. Yes, definitely. Um... My favorite quote, probably of all time, is by Layla Delia. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. But um, she says, I'm not for everyone, but who I am for, I'm for in a major way. And that helps me alleviate the pressure and the worries of what other people will think about me, especially my family. And I relate that quote to, you know, people close to me, like family members, where I'm not for everyone, but who I'm for, I'm for in a major way. And the I'm not for everyone could include family members. They could include close friends. And, 
And that's okay, you know, because those family members, those close friends, that quote applies to them as well. You know, they're not for everyone, but who they're for, they're for in a major way. Like, we're all so unique and we're all on our own journey. So there's going to be people who really, really resonate with the direction we're heading. And they're going to hop on board and be like, yes. And then there's going to be someone heading in the opposite direction. There's going to be people who are going to go out with them, you know, and and that's okay. So, you know, struggling with the fear of what people think is, it's hard. Like, I don't want to downplay it. It's really, really big. Um, But it's so important to conquer people pleasing because we cannot please everyone it's kind of like a cliche but it's it is hard to sink in you know it's hard to get that fact that we cannot please everyone to sink into our souls and just really accept it and just know that who we are is going there are going to be people who like us people who don't like us and that's okay just accepting that allowing ourselves to not be liked by everyone Mm -hmm. And um, I like to think about, you know, people-pleasing as if you are trying to pe- uh, people-please 10 different people, those 10 different people have different expectations and requirements of you. And so when you're interacting with those 10 different people, you are going to be 10 different versions of yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you do that enough, you're not going to know which one is the true you. And you can lose yourself in trying to be a specific person for your mom or your dad or your grandma or your cousin or your friend. And if you are, you know, trying to appease each of those people, you're probably shifting yourself in a either a small way or a big way, depending on who you're with. And eventually you just, you know, it's it can happen where we just lose ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm speaking from experience of losing myself and other people and not knowing which version is the true me. And so just, it's so important to remember to love ourselves and care for ourselves and do what we need to do for us. And if people around us don't get it and they don't like it, that says more about them than it says about you. Yeah. I think everyone can resonate with that, at least a little bit, even if you're not a people pleaser. Uh, I get that, and I understand that, and I feel that, and that burnout is real. And I am also thinking about the time I posted about dairy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Which is actually, like, last week. Um, (laughs) But I didn't know. I didn't know that it was going to be controversial, Mm. and it was. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, And it was really... Interesting, because I think I lost about 200 followers. Oh, wow. Yeah, which it did hurt me. Yeah. And I'm surprised. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, whoa, I didn't realize I cared that much, but I I did. And I remember getting all that feedback and being like, whoa, 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 this wasn't not supposed to be this uh, 
I, it wasn't supposed to be like this. I, I, that wasn't my intention with the post. And Sarah called me right away. <laughs> she, I didn't even have to text her. She called me. She knew because she's experienced this just with writing her book. And it's interesting because none of those people have even read your book. So they have no idea what it's like. <laughs> they have no idea why they're even unfollowing you. A lot you, of so. Yeah. Um, so, but it is, it is scary to be yourself and express yeah. your ideas and your thoughts and it's surprising when you feel rejected by even random people on the internet. I was like, whoa, I feel deeply rejected by these people I don't know. Well, it hurts because they have seen your content before. They have, they have validated you before and affirmed you before. They have followed you, you know. They don't even know you, but they know, like, they love you. You have worth, all this stuff. And what happens there, the hurt, is you do one thing that they don't like, and boom. It's as if the former years of you were erased. You know, they could have been following you for years, and it's like as if they invalidated who you are just because they disagree with one post. And that hurts. I mean, because it makes us feel like we have to walk on eggshells. Mm -hmm. It makes us feel like... So these people are not just for me, bottom line. These people are for me in a performative way. They want me to perform a certain way. And if I go off path a little bit in their eyes, you know, poof, <laughs> that's it. So yeah, I've been really struggling with the pain of feeling misunderstood and I feel like that's probably, you know, what you are feeling. Yeah. You're feeling misunderstood because it's like, obviously you did not mean to put any sort of message that was going to be controversial. Like you were intending, your intentions were aligned where it was like, I'm putting goodness into the world. I'm putting love into the world. And it wasn't being received that way. So it's like this misunderstanding that is like so frustrating. And I think being misunderstood hurts at a really deep level because it is both rejection and loss. So even in the example used for the followers, it's like those followers rejected and and you lost them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like both cuz most most pains in life are we lose someone we love or we are broken up with, you know, we're rejected or, or a friend just doesn't want to be friends with us, whatever. But this feeling of being misunderstood, it's both of them at the same time. And, you know, I'm not saying it's worse or anything like uh, pain is pain and hurt is hurt. And, you know, it's, everyone has different experiences with it, but it's so, so valid for you to feel that way that you felt after losing over the dairy right like for real because it's like it cuts you know it cut me it does yeah oh well thanks yeah I mean it's yeah it's it's uh it was a good ultimately a good thing for me to do that you know I feel like I needed that experience of just that whole experience I needed it to help me grow and see and understand 
Also, I think my ego probably needed it too because mm. every single thing I've like ever posted, people are either neutral about it or they're like, <laughs> I love you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just have the best followers. And I do, I have, the, I have really an amazing community, but I understand that not everyone is going to align with, with the message I have and that's okay. And so it's fine. It's like you said, it's negative energy clearing out space for for some good yes, energy to follow that's what you. I said to you that's when you, you lost. Me. <laughs> so I should take my own advice. Yes. Um, okay. So like, I'm just gonna you know lay my current situation out. So my current spiritual life looks like I'm not really sure. You know, for the past year, few years, I'd say five years, I was like I'm a Christian, and right now I'm kind of like. I believe in I believe in Jesus, um, and I believe that the Bible is a uh, you know religious and sacred book. But just like Sarah, I'm kind of on my own journey of kind of being more in the gray area. You know, I don't really feel comfortable calling myself a Christian right now, just because of the association and what it's kind of become. And it's like I'm not sure. You know, it's it's very confusing and. I've said this to Sarah so many times. I feel very lukewarm. I feel like I'm not really here or there. And that is, that's hard for me because I feel like I should be in a box. I should be somewhere. Um, and I can't figure out where to go. But just after reading your book and after just knowing you personally, I've really learned to love to be in the gray area. And I've loved to be lukewarm. And I'm like, this is where I'm at right now. And I still pray and I still meditate. I do yoga and I don't feel like I'm doing blasphemy or whatever. You know, I I just feel like me and it feels so good. When it if it's ever, you know, getting to a point where you're feeling shame because of any sort of belief that you have, then that's a time to analyze what is this? What is this belief? Why do I feel shame? You know, shame is not something that is going to catapult our growth. Like shame is something that is going to keep us stuck in just a negative pattern for a long time. And so I think the key is just doing things and believing things that give us light and love and good energy. Yeah, I actually just was recording a solo podcast earlier and I talked about how a lot of times if we have guilt and shame, we will, that will like reinforce and enable guilt and shame, like behaviors, like we'll do behaviors that produce more guilt and shame and we'll get kind of caught in a cycle. So I just think it's really interesting to like think about it in that way. If you are, if you're doing like behaviors from your guilt and shame that are causing more guilt and shame, it's kind of like, whoa, you're really in a cycle, which I think a lot of my audience will relate to. And ugh, it's so hard, <laughs> but it's something to think about, you know? Totally. It's like when we don't love ourselves, we treat ourselves poorly. You know, it's like if we believe we're unworthy, then we treat our bodies bad bad and then <laughs> you know? that will make us feel unworthy and then we'll treat our bodies bad exactly <laughs> it's like exactly <laughs> what am I gonna do no we know what we're gonna do so that's gonna be it for part one so part two Sarah's gonna be on 
next week's podcast, which is going to be about her eating disorder, perfectionism, fear, and a little bit more on people-pleasing, which is going to be wonderful to talk to you then. But for those listening now this week, where can people find your book? Honestly, please, please, please do yourself a favor and uh, buy the book if it's speaking to you, if any of what we're saying is speaking to you in any way, because it's a beautiful book, first of all, and also it's just full of so many actionable things that, like every single chapter, I was like, this is really interesting, and it's very soul-giving, so I really encourage everyone to at least check it out if you feel aligned, but yeah, where can people buy it and find you? Yes, you can buy it online at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Yay, it's a great size. It's not too heavy of a read, too, so... I yes. love it so much. It's, yes, it's like a weekend read. <laughs> Yay. Well, thank you, Sarah. I'm, I'll leave everything linked down below. And yeah, we'll see you next week. <laughs> see you next week. <laughs>